This is episode 72 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his debut on the podcast. He's one of the hosts of 97 Octane Hockey, Bob Schmidt. Bob, welcome to the show. Wow, I really appreciate you having me on, Eric. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, for sure, man. It was uh, fun being on your show the other night with Dursa and Chad, so I'm glad to get you on my podcast as well. And uh, we actually met a few months ago at the Heavy Hockey Showdown when we were teammates on Team Heavy Hockey. So uh, let's just start there. What was your experience like uh, playing in the charity hockey game and raising money for the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton? Well, first off, uh, we are we are the Oilers Lab Cup champions, so I think that goes, you know, <laughs> that, that needs to be mentioned. So I want to congratulate you on your role in that one. So good job, Eric. <laughs> Thanks, man. I, I, I definitely wasn't the top contributor out there, but, uh, you know, glad to chip in a little bit. It's the unsung heroes that win you championships. There you go. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I didn't play uh, hockey this winter, so uh, it, it took me uh, uh, probably the, the first period to just uh, get my legs under me again. I, I felt pretty rusty out there, but uh, I think I might be playing again this year. boy. I only looked like I didn't play all winter, but I did actually play all winter. <laughs> That's just my style. Um, actually, you know what? Funny story about that is uh, probably the uh, the last one they had. So, of course, the pandemic hit. But before that, they had one at, uh, at the Rogers downtown arena. And I was already, you know, bits of conversation with uh, Michael Hebert there on uh, on Twitter. And uh, and also Brett uh, Kuchensky or whatever his last name is. I forget the ref guy. So surveyor. surveyor Brett. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, he was looking for uh, a guy to ref because he was just going to come back from Vegas and might not be ready in time and also wasn't feeling the greatest. So I said I would come for a skate and ref. And so in the dress room, as I was tying my skates, uh, you know, ages ago, I had a bit of a disc issue in my in my back and it flared up in that dress room there. And I actually could not go out on the oh, ice. Oh, no way. So that was going to be my first heavy hockey experience or not heavy hockey, I guess, orders live at, at that time. And so I wasn't able to contribute at all. In fact, I was a bigger burden than anything else because they help, had to help me lead up, lead me out of the rink and drive me to the hospital and all that garbage. Oh, man, and, that's that's a tough break. And I, I played in that game, too. So we, we actually oh yeah? might have met three years ago if that would have happened. It was just about two weeks before the pandemic. So um, none of us knew at that time what was going to happen. But uh and then we all went to the Oilers and Jets game later that night. But, uh, yeah, it was a, a great weekend all around raising money for a good cause. And it's just a shame that we had to go three years without having one of these uh, charity games. It was, but my goodness. Uh, at that point, though, uh, I was kind of lucky that way because I was able to, to uh, start cultivating some relationships uh, with the hockey community, with the Oilers community there on, on Twitter. And so by the time I got to the Oilers Live Cup to play in it, you know, I was able to put some faces to to the names that I've been chatting with, and I was already doing some guest spots on some podcasts off and on uh, throughout the, the last couple of years. So, yeah, and, and to raise money for an absolutely phenomenal cause, uh, it was a it was a really productive and a really uh, good a good night, eventful night, but also just making those connections and networking. So, yeah, a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I mean I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's always awesome anytime you can play the best game in the world and raise money for a great cause. And uh, the, this was the third charity game that I've had the privilege of playing in. And uh, you already mentioned Michael A. Barron. You know, he deserves so much credit for putting all this event, uh, these events on, as well as the volunteers for everything they've done. And 
Uh, it was our goal to raise $25,000, and I'm pleased to say we hit that goal in a very short amount of time. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to do a, a couple more uh, charity games next season. Yeah, I got I got so much respect for Michael. Like uh, the things he's done and the heart he has and, and the mind he has. Like he's been one of my favorite connections I've made here in the last few years for sure. Definitely. And I mean, as the the founder of the Heavy Hockey Network, like we're all sort of connected because of him, too. So and he, yeah. he's the he's my uh, audio editor, too. So he'll be the first to hear this podcast after. So <laughs> I, I'm sure he'll love the compliments. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're we're coming up on the, the busiest part of the the off season now. And, you know, I, I'm just really looking forward to breaking down everything with you tonight we'll be discussing you know all the free agents that the Oilers have to make uh, decisions on but you know because you're a first-time guest on the show I'd like to start by just hearing about your own fandom as well as uh, 97 octane hockey so uh, when did you first get interested in hockey and how did you become an Oilers fan well I grew up way up north in northern Alberta in a small town called La Crete and it was a pretty hockey mad town but not necessarily like NHL wise, this is pre-internet. In fact, pre-TV for me, I didn't have a TV growing up. And so my dad and I actually used to listen to Rod Phillips on the radio call the Oiler games. Um, my biggest memory though of falling in love with hockey, the game itself was in the library at the age of four or five, I think I was. And I pulled out this small book about goalies and it had a goalie on the cover that had no mask on. And at that point, I didn't even know that such a thing had existed before that goalies didn't wear masks. And that whole book was about goalies with no masks. And for me, it was like these guys were instant superheroes. These were real-life superheroes standing in front of bullets with no protection, pretty much, especially on their face. I'd never forgot that that image, and that's all I ever wanted to be after that was a goalie. Like, uh, that, that's I was so one-dimensional in my thinking, uh, like every floor hockey game, street hockey game, um, you know, on the on the dugouts and ponds, I was just goalie, goalie, goalie. That's all I wanted to be. And then, of course, as I got, uh, I fell in love with the game just that way. So then you're like, okay, well, what's the best uh, there is in the world? And obviously it was the NHL. And I didn't really know that at the age of, you know, five and six. And back then it was the New York Islanders that were the uh, the hot dogs. And so, of course, my first team was the Islanders and Mike Bossy. But uh, I quit. that only lasted about a month until I heard about these <laughs> Oilers, these upstart Oilers, like, who are these guys? And then, then my dad actually educated me on what the, on who the Oilers were. And yeah, instantly I was fell in love with, with the Edmonton Oilers. So that would have been right around 1983, 82, 83. Well, funny enough, they played each other in back-to-back Stanley Cup yeah. finals too. So that you would have been forced to make a decision pretty quickly there. Um, <laughs> It wasn't uh, it wasn't forced at all. Like as soon as as soon as my dad started telling me about who Wayne Gretzky was and 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 all these guys, I'm like, holy smokes! Like I gotta, I I just fell in love with him instantly. So I was an Islander fan for like a month, and then it was all the winners. Oh, that's awesome! And what a time to become an Oilers fan at at this time when the dynasty is just starting and and they're about to begin a a stretch of five cups in seven years. And it's it's interesting that you also say that uh, you started becoming a, a fan of, of goaltending when you read this book that you got out of the library. I remember when I was 10 years old, I checked a book out of the library on Wayne Gretzky. And I mean, I was I was 10 when he retired in 1999. So 
I was familiar with him as a New York Ranger. And I actually, for my first birthday, I was, my dad gave me an LA Kings Gretzky jersey <laughs> that I still have that's for like a one year old. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but growing up, when I, from the time I started following hockey, it was all after Gretzky's time with the Oilers. So I wasn't around for any of the glory years. And when I read this book and started to learn more about the great one, I discovered that he had all these amazing years with the Oilers back in the 1980s. And that's where I sort of started to become an Oilers fan. And it's interesting to hear that, you know, your interest kind of started in, in a similar way. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm old enough. Like I remember Gretzky playing, obviously uh, like I was nine years old when they, when they won their, their first cup. And of course the early memories are kind of foggy. I, I remember certain highlights. I clearly remember them winning the first Stanley Cup. I, I remember you know, Dave Lumley raising his hands in the air, like uh, Lee Fogan, how the, the tears in his eyes and that sort of thing. Like I remember those, those images, but back then too, like I said, like if I wanted to watch TV, I had to go to like um, a friend's place or something like that to watching the game. So I listened most of it on the radio. And not every game was on TV at that time, right? Like exactly. now we, we get all 82 games. Now I believe at that time it was only about half the games were shown on ITV and, and CBC. Yeah, and and we only got to see for the most like when we finally got TV, I would have been like, uh, oh, I think I was probably like 13 years old, 12, 13 years old, and so. Um, but I do remember watching my first order game on an old black and white TV uh, at a friend's place, and uh, actually I didn't even know that I knew any people that had a TV at the time. So the fact that I found tracked down a TV and was able to watch <laughs> this game, and it was the orders against the Blackhawks, and uh, and I like it was such a fuzzy picture. But to me, it was like um, all these images I had in my mind that I was replaying when when Rod Phillips was calling the game. Uh, now I got to see what it looked like when Gretzky actually skated. Uh, you know what it looked like when Grant Fuhrer made a kick save when Mark Messi threw a hit. Now now I could now I could visualize it through the snowy screen that we were watching <laughs> it on. It was like it was almost like a religious experience for me. It was, it was mind blowing. And I've heard that a lot of Oilers fans back in the '80s and probably even throughout his entire time calling games for the the team was that they would actually mute the television and li <laughs> listen to Rod Phillips on the radio. Did you ever do that? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, once, cause for me, the, the voice of the orders was Rod Phillips. That's what I grew up listening to Rod Phillips. So when I first started watching them on TV, it just felt weird to me that it wasn't Rod Phillips. And that's not a knock against the, the announcers that there was, that there was broadcasting at that time on TV. It's just that Rod Phillips was my voice. So it was probably like for quite a few years there, I'd just be following Rod Phillips. Like he was the voice of my Oilers. So it just made sense. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what do you remember about your first Oilers game at Northlands Coliseum? Do you recall what year it was, who the Oilers played? Did anything significant happen? Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. February 14th, 1991, Valentine's Day. And uh, my parents. So I didn't grow up very rich. We didn't grow up very rich. And so for me, like I said, I grew up with no TV and that sort of thing for a long time. Going to a live hockey game was never, was, was never, going to an NHL game was never even something that I thought of as being a possibility for me. Uh, we used to come to Edmonton as a family like for holidays and stuff like that. So for me, it was always a thrill just driving by uh, Northlands Coliseum because, oh, this is where Gretzky plays. This is where Fury plays. It was mind-blowing. And I know once before we'd, we'd actually... Uh, we kind of pressured dad into driving into the parking lot just so we could say we were in the parking lot of Northlands Coliseum <laughs> like uh, <laughs> during a summertime once. And uh, so now this was, yeah, February 14th. And uh, my parents 
uh, didn't say anything. Uh, we just, we're just going for a drive. And then, uh, so here we were coming up to uh, Northlands Coliseum. And so it was my, my mom and dad and my brother and I. We pulled in the parking lot and the place is packed. And I'm aware that the orders are playing. Uh, so like, there's a game tonight. Like, what are, what are we doing here in the parking lot? And they pulled off this crappy, lame excuse that was like, uh, oh, actually, we ended up being able to take a tour of, of the downstairs <laughs> area of, of Northlands. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Uh, they couldn't lie anymore. So as soon as we got to the parking lot, they pulled up the tickets. And I just, like, I I darn near fainted that we were actually going to go see the Oilers play live. And we were way up in the nosebleeds. Um, it was Oilers versus Kings. So my first NHL game was Wayne Gretzky. Uh playing against the, against the Oilers with the Kings. They won, yeah. They won four to two. Uh, he had two assists of all the weird things I remember was uh, Gretzky ripping tape off his stick and throwing it over the glass and people scrambling for that piece of tape. <laughs> off his stick. Just to have a, a piece of the great ones stick tape, but uh, that's awesome, man. And um, you know, at least you, you got to see Wayne Gretzky in your first NHL game too, which makes it even that much more special. But, um, yeah, I, I know the same feeling. I was 17 when I saw my first Oilers game. And that first t- time when we drove over the hill and and, and <laughs> you you come sort of down towards uh, Wayne Gretzky Drive. And, and the first time I saw Rexall Place with my own eyes, it just lit up. And, you know, the building was, you know, even past its prime at that point. Like, this is um, in the year they went to the, the final in 06. So that was, I mean, it was a... Uh, it was still a, the building was still standing and then they, they played in it for 10 more years after that. But, um, back in 91, you know, it was still in its heyday and, uh, they were only one year removed from being champions at that time. So, I mean, you were watching, a still a team at the tail end of, of the dynasty and, and getting to see the great one. That's a, that's a pretty special first game to go see. Well, they had won the cup the, the year before in 1990. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So and and Billy Ramford had become a huge hero to be. Uh, obviously, as a that goalie, makes sense, right? Yeah. As a Conn Smythe run, like in fact, uh, shortly after that's when I started playing. Like, uh, like I didn't have goalie equipment on for the first time until I was like 17 years old. So that's a that's a whole different story. But uh, Billy Ramford, I fashioned my game after Billy Ramford because he was my goalie hero that I could relate to. But I, I kind of feel bad that during the Oilers Kings game that. Uh, I remember bits and pieces. I remember Kenny Linsman being a being a bit of a prick out there. I remember uh, uh, just loose ends like Mark Messi. I remember threw a couple of like one especially large hit uh, on the cor- on the corner of the rink we were sitting in. But uh, other than that, it was almost the whole time I'm just trying not to pass out from excitement. Like I wasn't able to soak in the game probably because I was just my sensory overload was just in full blast. And I'm sure there were so many things that you were trying to take in at once. I mean, it's your first time. <laughs> in Northlands Coliseum you're watching your favorite team play Gretzky's also there did you ever catch yourself at times just following Gretzky on the ice even though you're there to cheer for the Oilers oh yeah I look for him I like uh I'm a goalie uh was a goalie whatever so like I I say most of my favorite players are goalies but Wayne Gretzky is my favorite player of all time like goalie non-goalie like like just to me he is my hockey idol and uh, so, yeah, I like I looked for him. I was looking at him when he was on the bench. Like there's certain things I missed on the game just because I was looking for Gretzky. Is that 99? Is that 99? Because <laughs> Bernie Nichols was playing there, too, and he was number nine. So, like, I kept screwing them up, even though he's a right handed shot. But well, the next question I was going to also ask you is, you know, who were your favorite players as a kid and, and what did you like about their style of play? But you 
described Gretzky perfectly. You talked about Bill Ranford as well. Is there anyone else that kind of stood out to you and said that was one of my hockey heroes when I was younger? Well, uh, the funny thing is, uh, like my goaltending hero is a guy who died before me. Like I, once I saw these goalies with no masks on, I became a, a pretty a big time hockey historian just and just finding out what these uh, what these old guys did back then. The, the original six era to me was just like mind blowing. Uh, these guys with with the ancient gear they were playing, especially the goalies. So my uh, besides Gretzky, my like my second hero, my all time goalie hero is Terry Sawchuk. Like I am obsessed hmm. with Terry Sawchuk. I have so many books on him. I got like over 300 photos, different photos of him saved in my phone. There's a huge library of Terry Sawchuk pictures in there. Like I was obsessed with every element of his story. Didn't he pass away in the mid 80s? I want to say. No, he passed away in. Uh, oh, jeepers now. 70 was it 72 or seven somewhere between 72 and 78 i think okay and uh, you will obviously remember this story better than me but am i remembering the story was he living in switzerland or something like that no uh like when he passed you mean or what yeah yeah no he he passed uh so he was a the more I dove into Terry Sawchuk, I, I became definitely more of a fan of him as a goalie than than as a person. He was a pretty tumultuous person. Oh, you know who? Uh, I think I'm thinking of Jacques Plante. I think I'm yes, getting those Jacques two Plante mixed did. up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm yeah. I'm getting the. T- I I think he was actually living over in Europe at the at the time he passed. And um, yes. yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm getting those two confused. But yeah, two obviously legends of the game from uh, back in the original six era. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you're right. So he died. So I'm just checking it now. It was 1970s when he passed away at the age of 40. So uh, he actually passed away uh, having a fight with a teammate, his roommate uh, at the time. So um, that was uh, so it's kind of like a, a sad way to end. He he, get, he fell on the guy's knee, bruised his kidney and stuff like that, and just had so, so much internal bleeding. He ended up passing out addressing him but i mean him him and his uh roommate there they forgave each other at the end didn't blame him for it and that sort of thing but just at the age of 40 yeah it's the terrible in the history of the game passed away yeah. i mean he was the i believe the nhl all-time leader in wins and shutouts until broder came and eventually broke those records yeah that, that's correct yep he had a hundred Pat, patrick that, wall might have broke time. them too but i i believe that Sawchuk at one time you know held it for for several decades I think Waugh broke the wins record before Berdur did, but Berdur broke the shutout record. That sounds right. Yeah. And uh, 103 shutouts. That stood up for a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, and especially, you know, when they weren't playing 82-game seasons either back then. Now, they didn't use backup goalies as often either, so he was probably playing a majority of the 70 games a year, I would imagine. I'd have to go look at his stat line, but... Um, but yeah, just an incredible feat for any era. He was actually a big proponent of the two goalie system. So uh, I think two goalie system came in in the early sixties, mid sixties, they started doing the two goalie system and he felt like it prolonged his, his career. Um, he didn't like it at first cause he, like every goalie wants to play every game. So he'd fight that for the longest time. But, uh, I think what won him over was when he went to Toronto and him and Johnny Bauer just became this dynamic team and they fed off each other. He was the first goaltending partner he ever had that he got along with. <laughs> and wasn't it Glenn Hall who who still owns the, the NHL record for most consecutive starts by oh, a goaltender? Isn't that ridiculous? It's over uh, 500, uh, I believe. Yeah, uh, 550-something. <laughs> I mean, I that's a record that no one will even ever come close to because no one's going to even play 82 games yeah. again. So to to think about 500, that record is 
as unbreakable as any of Wayne Gretzky's scoring records. <laughs> and the thing is, I think it's more unbreakable. Like, cause like you say, nobody does that anymore. Like if a goalie plays 60 games right now, they start talking about him being overloaded. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, it's like when people say, which of Gretzky's record is, is going to be the toughest to beat Uh 92 goals in a season, 50 goals in 39 games. Uh, 2,857 points. They're all equally unbreakable. I mean, there's there's not one that's like that people have more of a shot at than, than anyone else. They're they're all indestructible records. Look how dominant Connor McDavid is, and he's not even coming close to putting Gretzky numbers up, really. Like, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, back uh, last fall, I did an episode uh, of the podcast with a, a buddy of mine, Brian Swain, who used to be over at TSM 1260. He, he's now with the Edmonton Elks. And, uh, we were talking about some potential long-term goals that McDavid could hit in his career. Like how many goals do you think he'll finish with? How many points, how many art Ross trophies, how many hundred point seasons, things like that. And, uh, one of the things we talked about is could he become the second player ever to hit 2000 points? And if you look at how he's trending right now, if McDavid can sort of stay at this level or even if he drops down a bit to, say, a 120-point player for the next five years, he's going to really set himself up well in his 30s to have a shot to hit 2,000 points before his career is over. And even if he did that, as remarkable as a feat as it would be, he'd still be nearly 1,000 points behind Gretzky. You know, you, you, you kind of alluded to this on our podcast the other day where you said, like, uh, Connor McDavid, the way he's playing and the numbers he's putting up, uh, he's going to go down as one of the all-time greats, no doubt about it. And yet he'll still always just be the second best order of all time. Exactly. You you can look at most teams around the league. Um, there's there's a few organizations where you could say that no one has a shot of ever surpassing that player in terms of greatness. Like Bobby Orr in Boston, for example. Or, uh, I mean, pick whoever you want with the Habs. I mean, you could say... Uh, Rocket Richard, Guy Lafleur, Jean Beliveau. It's it's kind of a toss up there. And Edmonton, it's Gretzky by a long shot. But yeah, like that's that's as high as McDavid can ever shoot for. And Edmonton is being number two. And um, you know, some people might still have Mark Messier ahead of him at this point because of all the cups he won. But I think if you're just looking at pure talent, there's there's no question that McDavid is number two behind Gretzky. Well, I'm very thankful that I'm I've lived in both eras. I've seen Gretzky play. I've seen you know. You're I'm, one I'm, of the lucky ones. I I, I always I say I wish like I was born in 1989, yeah. and I've I've often joked that I wish I was born 15 years earlier because <laughs> I love 80s music, I love 80s movies, <laughs> and I love 80s hockey. So I mean I, you know I enjoy all three of those things uh, after they've happened, but it would have been cool to have been around for it. For me, like uh, like Gretzky, yeah, as skilled as he was, and he was skilled. Like he was an elite stick handler. He was an elite um, passer. Like uh, nobody's seen passing. Oh, like Wayne. No did. one ever saw the ice better. No one ever passed the puck better than Wayne Gretzky. But for me, his biggest skill set was his brain. He thought the game uh, at a level that I I think to this day is unmatched. I don't think anybody has the, as high of a hockey IQ as Wayne Gretzky ever had. Um, if you're going to talk skill though, I'm telling you right now that Connor McDavid is the most skilled player I've ever seen. And the best combinations of, of skills for, for sure. Uh, you know, like he has so many different elements to his game that you can call him the most evolved or most advanced player in hockey history. Uh, I would, I would sign that petition. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so, you know, sticking with, I mean, that's, that's going to be a pretty tough memory to beat, uh, seeing Wayne Gretzky in your first NHL game, but just, uh, following up on that, is that your best memory ever of watching the Oilers or is there one that even surpasses that? Well, because sometimes, sometimes these kind of memories that I have sensory overload, I tend to end up thinking about them in the third person as if I almost wasn't there. And, uh, and so like as, as magical as that was, and, and, and it was like, I, yeah, like realistically, I'd have to say, yeah, that, that's my favorite uh, order of memory, especially in person. But um, is there anything even close that would be a, a second that comes to mind? Like in person or just overall? You know what? Either. But for the sake of saying in, in person, I think that makes it even more interesting that you were in the building for it. Yeah. Um, well, I got to go to game three uh, of the 06 finals. Uh, and that was actually my first playoff game. So my first playoff game live experience was a Stanley Cup Finals game in Game Three, and uh, that was um, like we stood the whole time. Uh, I remember yelling, screaming, and we were gonna go do that White Avenue party thing afterwards. Uh, but uh, we were so wiped after the game, trying to get to the parking lot. That was like, uh, you know what? We're done. We're just gonna go back to the hotel and crash. <laughs> Well, it was a it was a tied game one one late in the third period and in typical Ryan Smith fashion he crashes the crease and the puck bounces off the Oilers crest on his jersey and in the net I I can't think of a more uh, prototypical Smitty goal than that and on, on the grandest of scales right so uh, yeah yeah to be in the building for and yeah to have, obviously do it with the Oilers win that that's insane. Uh, and then this last year, actually, I got to go to the game seven or not this last year, the season before game seven, Edmonton, L.A. So that was my first game seven okay. experience. So that was um, also my uh, first ever playoff game was also in that series. I went to game one. Uh, okay. They they ended up losing four three on a late goal when Mike Smith made a, you know, a bit of a gaffe playing the puck. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I almost wish I would have went to game two instead because I, I think they blew the Kings out six nothing that night. So uh, that would have probably been the one to go to. It's that game one curse that they, they still haven't been able to get over since 2017. But I'm hopeful that it'll finally end uh, next spring. We'll just have to wait another 11 months or so. I don't care if we lose game one as long as we... we yeah, win. well, I mean, they, they seem to be, you know, they've they've won, what, three of their last uh, five playoff series w- without winning game one in any of them. So uh, it definitely doesn't set them back too far. <laughs> And uh, how many Oilers games do you typically attend at Rogers Place each season? So I actually, I lived in Grand Prairie for 21 years. So I've, been oh, in okay. Edmonton now. I've been in Edmonton now for about seven. And so even when I lived in Grand Prairie, I'd still go to about five games a year. Uh, now that I'm here, I try to, I try to go uh, to one game a month. But uh, I'm lucky enough to work for a company that actually uh, partially shares a box. Oh, nice. With, um, yeah, with another company. And I'm the perfect last-minute seat filler because they all know that Bob will drop anything to come to the Oilers game. The only thing I won't drop is if I have like plans with with the kids, right? But anything else, anything else, I drop has like last second. I'll, I'll drop it. Yeah, I'm coming to the Oilers game. So and you know I'm one the perfect of, seat filler. Yeah, I mean that that's a, a perfect setup. And you know, one a month is great. I'd love to come out uh, once uh, a month as well. Although you know, I, I live in Saskatoon, so I'm about a five and a half hour drive away, and when you factor in the money for gas and hotel and food, you know, it makes it a, l- a little more expensive, but I, I would definitely like to come to more. I, I typically make it out to three or four games a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, in the McDavid era, it makes me, you know, want to 
<laughs> especially get out there to see him as often as possible. And uh, I do. I just got my ticket last weekend for uh, the Heritage Classic, so that'll be only my second time ever at Commonwealth Stadium. I went to a a Women's World Cup of Soccer game back in 2015 uh, when I was in town for a street hockey tournament, actually. Uh, <laughs> it was being played at West Edmonton Mall at the time, the, the play-on tournament, which I now think they've shifted to in front of... Uh, it's I think it's on 104th Ave, right in front of Rogers Place now, but I, I like the setup that they used to have at WEM. It was a, it was a really great tournament they put on. And yeah, um, you know, like I said, if it, if it was uh, a little more uh cheaper i would i'd probably be out there more often but um yeah i'm gonna try and make it out and it, it's gonna be a blast going to the heritage classic i went to the one in winnipeg in 2016 and um yeah this i, I had to be at the one in edmonton as well i'm i'm, I'm very jealous I, I did look i saw some tickets were going for 150 so it's a little bit more reasonable but uh i don't know you're way up there for me i like I, I honestly <laughs> think sitting in the upper deck is better for uh, watching hockey in a football stadium because you do have a little bit of a better vantage point than when you're down low and you're you're sort of level sure. with the ice. Uh, I mean, really, the people who are going to have the best view are the ones watching on TV at home. And yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, you know that, goes, that goes for any game, like even the ones at Rogers. Your best seat's always going to be in front of the TV because you have access to yeah. places you don't have in, at Rogers. But it's the experience, it's the atmosphere. That's, that's what I said. I want to be there to say I was there. I mean, I'll take a bunch of pictures and videos and just to see the guys skating out on the ice and in that long walk from the the locker room out onto the field. It's, it's going to be really cool. And Winnipeg did a great job hosting it back in 2016. And I'm sure that uh, Edmonton will do the same this year as for the 20th anniversary of the original heritage classic. That's incredible. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for me at that time, it was the, it was the first time in my life that Wayne Gretzky had ever played in an Oilers uniform. Cause like I said, I was born five months after the trade and here I was 14 years old and I'm watching this alumni game, and I'm honestly more excited for the alumni game than I am for the actual regular season game. And it was the same way for the alumni game in 2016 because that that first game in 03, that was the first time I'd ever seen Wayne Gretzky play in an Oilers jersey, period. And in 2016, it was the only time I've ever seen Wayne Gretzky play live for any team. So, I mean, as far as I knew, it was going to be his last game. And uh, he did end up playing one more for the St. Louis Blues alumni uh, a couple months later in the stadium series. But um, it was just a a once in a lifetime opportunity to see my hero play for the Oilers and just have all the uh, legends from the glory days there, too. And, you know, Glenn Sather on the bench, just it it was as close to seeing uh, the all my hockey heroes as I was ever going to get. I was never going to be able to see them when they were at their best, but uh, just a a very cool experience for me. And I don't know if Gretzky will play in the alumni game this fall, but uh, I'm I'm hoping that they talk him into lacing up the skates one last time. You know, I I have to agree with you that for the 03 uh, one, I was the same way, whereas I was just, I was more excited for the alumni game than for uh, (laughs) the actual game. Uh, yeah, those are all my heroes. They're they're playing, and you know it would be nice to see Gretzky score. You know that sort of thing. But like, Fuhrer looked good to me, and you know, and I'd like to remember this, Eric, is that uh, Mark Messi was actually still playing. He uh, was. He was an active player, and Glenn yeah. Sather was the GM of the Rangers at the time, and he That's was the Oilers' correct. coach in that game. So they both 
took a a break from the Rangers to be a part of this alumni game. Just <laughs> that's that's one of the uh, incredible storylines to come out of that whole event. Yeah. And the, but the fact you're good on the Canadians alumni for allowing that to happen, they probably could have made us yeah. think about that if they wanted to. So because uh, most of the Canadians were actually quite a bit older than the Oilers. Because they uh, were the 70s dynasty. Yeah. So there was probably, you know, five to 10 years um, on top of how old the Oilers guys. And most of the Oilers legends were in their early 40s at that point. And, you know, a lot of the Habs players would have been in their their 50s. And when yeah. I saw Gretzky and, and the Oilers legends play in 2016, they were all in their mid 50s by right. then. Right. Uh, I mean, there were some guys who still looked pretty good out there, like Mark Messi and Paul Coffey. I think of from the '80s, play, was only two years removed from playing in the league. Um, Steve Stales had been retired for about six years at that point, so there were there were some guys who were a little younger. But uh, yeah, I mean, the ones who everyone was, I think, most excited to see was like you know any of the Hall of Famers who played for the Oilers in yeah. the 80s. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm sure you've heard this too, but Gretzky, for the most part, has sworn off playing in any old-timers games. He he wants people to remember him the way that he was and, and not to see him uh, not at where his game is at now because he doesn't skate anymore. So he, he skates once a year at his fantasy camp and that's right. it. So he isn't a, a guy who typically likes to be involved in those sort of events. But uh, this was an opportunity because I'm about the same age as Gretzky's kids, right? And mm-hmm. all of his kids were born after he had been traded to L.A. And he wanted his kids to see him play in an Oilers jersey once. And uh, I'm glad that he did because I also got to see him play in an Oilers jersey. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. And, you know, as I mentioned off to the top of the show, you know, you're one of the newest podcast hosts here at the Heavy Hockey Network with 97 Octane Hockey. I believe you guys have done four episodes now. So I just want to know, how long have you known Mike Dursa and Chad Graham? And was this show something you guys had been talking about doing for a while? Uh, I uh, I met uh, Dursa through Michael Hebert. So uh, I was doing guest spots on Orders Live for a while. And then and, and then also uh, Dursa was doing the same thing. And so we were like a few times, there were three of us on the show. Uh, and then when Dursa started to straight off the pipe, uh, he got me on his show quite a few times. And it was during straight off the pipe where we had kind of like a goalie episode and him and uh, Mike Dursa and Chad Graham, they go back a long ways. They played hockey together and what have you in their younger days. So he wanted to get his buddy Chad on and then me on. And then we just, like Chad and I just had a blast together that episode and we we had so much fun. We actually joked about the fact that probably nobody else got anything out of this episode except for Chad and I cuz we just we, we were just balancing crazy stuff off each other and Chad old goalies. <laughs> the old goalies. Chad's a pretty animated guy, a uh, pretty emotional guy, so uh, there's that dynamic as well that 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 can be entertaining at times. You know, and, you guys you bring a lot of energy to the show. I like I said I was a uh, I've watched a couple on YouTube already and then I was lucky enough to be a guest on your show uh, a couple nights ago. So yeah, it's been a uh, it's been good to see what you guys uh, have been doing and there's obviously a lot of chemistry there and I I think that it keeps it lively that you guys uh, are so animated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's all the pucks to the head. I think that did, did that over, <laughs> over the years. But I get full credit to Mike Dursa. Uh, he, he was the guy who uh, just sent out a text one day and said he had some ideas for an upcoming show. So I thought it would be another guest spot again. And then he started talking about this. He wanted to start a brand. He wanted to rebrand uh, straight off the pipe into something else. And he just he liked the, the, 
the dynamic that the three of us had and was really hoping that we uh, we'd come together and and help out with that and yeah I was super thrilled about at the opportunity uh I'll, and I'll honestly like talking hockey is like probably the only thing I like talking about <laughs> too too much so so the fact that I have a platform like that just to bounce off crazy ideas and 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 talk uh, talk hockey is just yeah I'm very I'm very thankful I feel very lucky yeah, it's really cool. And have you guys made any plans for the regular season? I know it's still over three months away, but are you thinking about doing live streams after every game? Are you going to host a show once a week? Or have you guys not got that far into discussions about what the long-term plans are? We have been discussing it uh, periodically, uh, set nothing in concrete yet, and both of those ideas have been thrown around. Uh, so one thing we were doing was straight off the pipe quite a bit was doing the the live stream right after the game. And uh, and that seemed to be... it. Uh, it seemed it seemed to do well. We got good feedback on it, so we might look into maybe starting it that way and see and see how it goes, and then uh, pr- kind of probably take it on a on a on a week to week basis and see and just kind of review, evaluate as things are going on. And that's one thing about when you start a new uh, show is you know you can change things on the fly and you can start uh, just doing doing whatever it takes to uh, to make something work and see how it resonates with people. Oh, for sure. And lastly, just before we move on, are you planning to have def- different guests uh, each episode or will it just mostly be you, Mike and Chad? I think at, at this point early on, we're, we're focusing on the guest aspect uh, just because it, you know, it exposes us to more people because uh, they also bring their own audiences in. And uh, and all the guests we've been getting are have been just quality. Uh, and all honesty, Eric, not not just to butter you up here on this episode on this episode here, but you've you've been my favorite one so far for the episode that we had. We we covered a lot of a lot of stuff there. It was just good, a good intelligent hockey conversation and a lot of fun as well. I think later on as we go, uh, we're gonna, gonna do mix and match a bit more. It might just be the three of us and then periodically throwing the guests here and there. So it's gonna be kind of a combination of the two. Well, first I appreciate that, man. And anytime you want me back on the show, just let me know. Uh, good luck with it. I, I'm sure you guys are gonna do great. It's like I said, it's it's just early on here, but you're already. Um, starting to gain a following on Oilers Twitter. And I appreciate you sharing some of those stories about Gretzky and the glory years as well. It's always awesome to hear about uh, the great one. And uh, let's move on now to the... Sorry, don't don't me do it off, but I got to give full credit to Mike Dursa. Uh, oh, sure. For, for, for getting the idea. Awesome. So I'm going to give him a shout out. But not only that, but one thing I've learned through this process is, is that he is so involved at every aspect of the podcast and he's a perfectionist, uh, which, uh, you know, I respect him for it. And he worked out some of the audio kinks early on and just like, he, he would call me and text me at, at, at all hours and, and just working on ideas. So full, full credit to Mike Dursa for how things have been going so far. Yeah, he's he does a great job. And, you know, he's been a regular guest on my show over the years too. So maybe we'll even do an episode where I can get you and Mike and Chad all in one uh, discussion together. That'd be a blast. I mean, we've already done it once on your show. I just got to bring the trio <laughs> you over here now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we're now just nine days away from the start of NHL free agency, and Oilers GM Ken Holland has already checked one item off his to-do list by signing Derek Ryan to a two-year contract with a $900,000 cap hit. And in my opinion... Ryan was the one UFA they absolutely needed to bring back. Uh, Bob, what are your thoughts on the deal? Well, uh, first off, let me ask you why you thought that. Why I thought that it was important to bring him back? Yes. I, I mean, when you look at his value to the team, 
he's probably been their most productive bottom six forward over the last couple of years. He, he scored 10 and 13 goals respectively in the past two years while playing almost entirely on the fourth line. Uh, he's one of Edmonton's best penalty killers. Uh, he's a right shot center. He's 54.9% on faceoffs in his career. He has underrated hands. He plays close to mistake-free hockey, and I think he's a player who really understands his role on the team. You know what you're going to get from him every night. And, you know, he probably could have got more money on the open market this summer, but he loves playing in Edmonton. He wants to finish his career here. And even though he turns 37 next season, I'm really not worried about signing him to a two-year deal because his cap hit is so low that you could easily send him down to Bakersfield in the second year if his game dropped off. But I think at worst he'd be Edmonton's 13th forward by that time anyway. So this is one of the things that I, I really respect about you, Eric, is, is that you, do, you don't just you don't just spit it out. You actually back it up with stuff. And that's one thing you showed also on our podcast. So uh, hats off to you for that one. Um, early on, uh, when I first heard the resign, I think Derek Ryan earned the resign because like, he definitely uh, had a strong season. And I felt he actually picked up his play in the playoffs as well. And like you said, he, he knows his role. He accepts his role and he relishes in his role. Uh, the age thing did that kind of rubbed me a bit like two years on a 36 year old, but you make a good point thinking that uh, by the time his year number two is, he'll go, he's going to be the 13th forward. I actually think we're going to see more of that already this coming season, depending on who we bring in or who we resign. I see Derek Ryan's role being a bit more uh, diminished as the season goes on. Um, but having said that, like you can't go wrong with him in the lineup. Like he is, he no. keeps the game simple. Uh, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Uh, he knows where his lane is and he knows what he brings to the table and he and he just excels at it. And what if the salary cap jumps five million next summer and you have Derek Ryan at nine hundred thousand when the salary cap is eighty eight and a half million? Are you really that concerned about him as your 13th or 14th forward? Well, I'm not that concerned now, even because I, I do think what Derek Ryan brings is like nine hundred thousand is still a good value for him. Like if he scores double digits again, which, uh, you know, he may or may not. Uh, but if he does, like you're already getting your money's worth. But the, all the intangibles that you mentioned before that he brings to the table, that's $900,000 worth of talent right there in that little guy. And let's remember, those 13 goals all came on the fourth line with no power play time. So he's right. either scoring those shorthanded or at even strength. And to get those type that amount of goals in limited minutes, like he's not playing a lot. And I think it, it really speaks to, you know, how effective he is. And uh, I think he's he's pretty underrated on breakaways. I mentioned that he has underrated hands. Uh, when you give that guy an opportunity where you can put a puck into good space and he's able to track it down, he can make a good move. And I think his uh, I'd ha- I have to go look at what his conversion rate on penalties were last season or on penal- or on breakaways. I mean, but uh, you give him a chance in all alone and he's usually going to bury it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, one thing I usually notice when I when I watch Derek Ryan is just like his positional. Like he is he is so strong positionally, and like I said, he keeps it simple, and that's what makes him makes him effective. And he's consistently one of your hardest workers every night too. Yeah, the goals are a bonus. It's yeah. not like it when the Oilers aren't signing Derek Ryan for his offensive ability, they're signing him to keep the puck out of the net. Yeah. And I think that if you're a if you're a fourth line forward. That should be your number one priority when you're on the ice is to limit how much the other team gets. A hundred percent. Anything yeah. you chip in is just a bonus. I wish my beer league team knew that too. <laughs> Everyone wants to be McDavid, right? 
<laughs> everyone. <laughs> you know, hearing that made me think of a. Another uh, heritage classic story from 03. I think it was Scott Oak who was interviewing uh, Paul Coffey um, right before the, the start of the, the Megastars game back in, in 03. And he asked him, <laughs> uh, are you going to be blocking any shots out there tonight? And, uh, and, and he, told, he told Scott Oak, he said, Scott, I didn't block shots for 20 years in the NHL. What makes you think I'm going to start tonight? <laughs> And I just thought that was such a great quote because like, I mean, I, I have a rule that, you know, if I'm, if I'm paying to play, I'm, I'm not standing in front of any shots, but, uh, you know, Derek Ryan is, uh, is a guy who isn't afraid to do that. He's a, uh, he's a pretty tough little guy. He is. So uh, like I said, the first time uh, I heard the term, I'm like, oh man, two years for a 36 year old. But, uh, yeah, like I, I do see his role diminishing as time goes on, but still being very effective in the, in the time that he does play. Oh, for sure. And uh, with Ryan signed, the Oilers now have six roster players to make decisions on, including three RFAs and three UFAs. And if the salary cap only increases by one million next season, then the Oilers have roughly five million dollars to work with. So it seems inevitable that one of or possibly both Kyler Yamamoto and Warren Fogle will be moved fairly soon to open up additional cap space. Uh, Bob, do you think that they'll both go and who would you prefer to keep between the two? Well, the first thing to consider is priority number one is to have we have to sign Bouchard. So we're clearing up this space for uh, Evan Bouchard to give him right. a healthy contract. And like, in all honesty, like Evan Bouchard could easily demand it will be worth seven to eight million dollars a year for the next seven years or so. Um, the Oilers can't do that though. We'll I, we'll get to Bouchard in a bit, but I mean, yeah, he's he's going to get a short term deal. Yeah, yeah, it'll have to be a bridge thing. But, um, man, McLeod is such a, I, 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 I would, I would keep McLeod, uh, just for, uh, I think he's still developing, um, oh, specifically between, um, between Yamamoto and Fogel, oh, which, sorry. Are, which, yeah, which of those, no, no, sorry about that. Which of those two do you think that the Oilers should keep if, if one of them at all, like, do you think there's a chance that both of them get sent out? I think there's a chance both of them get sent out. Now, having said that, I think still, I think Yamamoto still has the the higher upside. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he battled definitely battled the injuries this last year, that which I think slowed him down, especially for a guy his size and the way he plays. Uh, if he's not healthy, he's not going to be as effective. Uh, we know what we get with Fogel. Fogel is very dependable. Uh, he's put up the, basically the same numbers here in Edmonton as he did in Carolina. He plays the same style. He, he's a safe bet on the ice. Um, so you know what you get. So, so there's no real high danger there. Uh, if if I was held at gunpoint and had to choose who to uh, who to keep, I would probably pick Yamo just because of his upside. His last season just did not help his cause at all. Definitely. And and look, I've been a fan of Yamamoto since the day he was drafted back in 2017. I actually wrote an article uh, for the. Uh, Oilers blog I was writing for at the time the day before the draft saying Yamamoto was who I wanted the Oilers to pick nice. and you know, l- luckily they got him at 22nd overall I-, I think it was LA and Washington were really looking at him too but uh, thankfully the Oilers got him and he makes some nice plays you know he keeps pucks alive in the offensive zone he digs pucks out for his teammates and he kills penalties but when you're making 3.1 million a year 
you need to produce a little bit more, especially when you're playing alongside McDavid or Dreisaitl. So as much as I'd like to see him stay in Edmonton, they need the cap space. And if there's a team that's willing to take him off the books and not send any money back, then I think they have to do that. And uh, as for Fogel, he was on pace for a career year this uh, past season as well. And, um, you know, he's a big body. He skates well. He has underrated hands. Uh, uh, you know, you, you talk about a guy like Derek Ryan. If Warren Fogel could finish on a few more of his breakaways, he, he'd be a 25-goal scorer for sure. And uh, I, I thought he played really well against Vegas in the playoffs. He he stepped up a lot there. And uh, But again, he's a bottom six forward making $2.75 million yep. a year. And the Oilers have Dylan Holloway ready to slide into that spot at left wing. And he, he'll do it for about a third of the cost. So I have a feeling that they're both going to get moved relatively soon. I think you're right. I, I think they are both going to move. Uh, but if we are only going to move one, it would have to be Yamo. Uh, I think we also get more in return for Yamo as, as well. And uh, I, I don't know if they will, only because I, I look at it like, yes, he scored 20 goals and had 40 points last year. But I think there's going to be teams that are concerned about his injury history. Um, you know, there, there's going to be teams that are still concerned about his size, which shouldn't be as big of an issue in 2023 as it has been um, in the past. But I, I just think that come playoff time, when the game gets a little more physical and um, for a smaller guy like him, there's going to be teams that are going to have their, their concerns about him. That's Those are valid points. And at the same time, like, I think it was Frank Saravelli from Daily Faceoff who put out that there is one team that's already agreed to take Yamamoto off the Oilers' hands for nothing. So maybe a fifth-round pick or something like that. But if uh, if there turns out to be a bit of a market for him, that would be great too. And then you have a couple teams in a bidding war. As for Fogel, um there's probably going to be a few more teams interested just because of, you know, his size and uh, the range of skills he has. He's, he's a good skater for a big guy, too. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some teams saw what he did in the playoffs and said, you know, we'd be interested in having that guy on our third or fourth line. But for both guys, though, in the end, uh, like it's a salary dump. So, like, we're probably focused well, that's, more on getting, that's it. We're, getting some more we're, you don't want to bring any money back yeah. in. This exactly. is money out the door because, okay, let's let's just say if the Oilers do uh, trade Yamamoto for nothing, then that bumps them up to about $8.1 And then Fogel makes just under three. So now you're talking about close to $11 million in cap space. So if they could do that, you know, $11 million starts to look a lot better than what they're currently at right now. And then you can actually go out there in free agency and bring in a couple guys as well as take care of all your own RFAs who we'll talk about in a second here. But um, at 5 million, it would be pretty tough to get all their own players even signed for that, let alone going out and trying to bring anyone else in. Yeah. You're pretty handcuffed already at that point, especially if we're getting any kind of, any kind of quality. Yeah. I mean, at that point, all your UFAs are gone. And uh, and then, you know, you could probably uh, it, it would be tight just to get uh, Bouchard and, and McLeod taken care of, let alone cost. And, and we'll we'll talk about them now. So, um, you know, I, I really think as as much as 
there are going to be some of the UFAs that would have interest from the Oilers to, in, in coming back. Uh, the RFAs need to be the priority for, for Holland. And uh, the most important player among that group is Evan Bouchard. He just completed his entry-level deal and is due for a substantial raise on the 832000 he was making last season. So first off, how impressed were you with Bouchard in the playoffs this spring? And secondly, what do you think his next contract will look like? Well, first off, yeah, like uh, I was a big Tyson Berry fan. I always thought even his defense. So was I. He, I thought even his defensive play was was underrated. Um, he he then, definitely picked up his defensive game this past season. Sorry to cut you off, but I mean that he really, I thought, um, took that to heart. And and he kind of said, I think, back in um, training camp that you know he was thirty now and he really wanted to make that a a, a bigger emphasis of his game. So I I respect that that. Here's an offensive defenseman who's not the biggest guy and, uh, you know, sometimes has trouble boxing out some of the bigger forwards in front of the net or winning puck battles in the corners. But he was going to make that uh, something that he was going to focus on. And yeah, we, so I think people forget because Ekholm came in and was so effective that Barry was having a really good year with the Oilers when he got traded. He was uh, just coming off his uh, career year, too. So, like, the Oilers were a good fit for him. And, and he did play a very key role, pivotal role, in the Oilers having the number one power play uh, unit in, in, in the world. Um, of all time. Of all, yeah, of all time, exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, so, there there was that dynamic where you're like, okay, well, can Bouchard pick up that mantle? Um, but uh, Bouchard actually, he did better than I anticipated. Uh he, the more playing time he got, it seemed like the more effective he got. And maybe that's a common thing for most players, I, I suppose. But there were some spots during the early part of the season where he was still making some really rookie mistakes for a guy who had been in the league now for a couple of years. Uh, but that he seemed to eliminate the majority of those when he got the basically got like top two pairing D-man units. And his power play, number one, the, the threat of that shot is a bigger threat than Barry's shot. Uh, but he definitely elevated even his passing game, the way he was passing to the guys in the corner and and what have you. Uh, like he impressed the crap out of me. Oh, definitely. And, you know, after putting up 43 points as an unofficial rookie defenseman in 2021-22, I expected Bouchard to take a big step forward offensively this past year. However, he did get off to that slow start. And I, I think a big reason for his early struggles was that he was just adjusting to life without Duncan Keith as his defensive partner. But, you know, his game really took off in March when he was paired with Matthias Ekholm and replaced Barry on that top power play unit. Uh, Bouchard had 19 points in his final 19 games of the regular season, and he was even better in the postseason, tallying 17 points in 12 playoff games. So the Oilers would obviously love to lock him up to an eight-year contract this summer, but they, they simply just don't have enough cap space to be able to afford the UFA years they'd be buying which means the Oilers will almost certainly have to sign him to a bridge deal. Um, and of course, the risk in that is if he puts up 70 points playing on the best power play in NHL history in one of the next season or two, then his price will skyrocket. And uh, the Oilers don't want to go down that road again after bridging Darnell Nurse twice before his career year drove his price tag way up. And uh, the other concern is that Bouchard could be a potential target for an offer sheet from another team. Uh, yep. However, I, I'm confident the Oilers would match any contract that was submitted. So in the end, I think Bouchard will get a one-year deal with a cap hit of $3.5 Oh, really? Eh? 
See, I was thinking, I was thinking two years closer to closer to like four point five. Well, um, I think it could work for both sides because the Oilers are going to say, "Do us a favor and take a bit of a lower cap hit on a one-year deal, and we'll do you a favor a year from now when the cap jumps up four or five million, and there's more room for us to sign you to a, a longer-term deal at a at a bigger figure." So I think that that's going to be uh, where they're going to have to make the deal work is that it, it, Bouchard will will help them in the short term and the Oilers will look out for him in the long term. And that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, I can definitely respect that that theory and I kind of hope that's the way it goes. And um, yeah, because he like. How big of an how big of an offer sheet would somebody have to sign for the Oilers to say, no, we can't do it. Um, I mean. I think that they would probably match anything that was under eight million, but you have to think if a team's signing him for for even in the seven eight million dollar range, they'd probably want to go long term. And and Bouchard knows that the only team that he can sign an eight year deal with is Edmonton, so he could sign a a seven year extension with someone else. I just don't think that it's going to happen. Um, like first of all, who could afford to bring Bouchard in? And of of the teams that could afford to bring him in, who's looking for a number one power play defenseman? So realistically, the best opportunity for him is in Edmonton because he's playing on a Stanley Cup contender and he's playing on a lethal power play unit with the two best players in the world. And the fact that when the cap goes up, he'll have a chance to have a a major payday. I, I just can't think of a better opportunity for him anywhere else in the league. And that and that's the key there to, to see the big picture, right? And I and I think uh, Bush comes across as the guy who who probably sees that. Uh, right. You know, success uh, drives your price up too, right? And championships are, are the most successful thing you can do. So you'll be you'll become like a, a marquee name here in no time. Like, and I I do think that Bouchard is probably uh, you know seven to eight million worth kind of defenseman. To, Eventually to he will. And, you know, yeah. if the salary cap, like I said, is at 88 million a year from now, and then it jumps another 2 million after that to 90 million or more, that gets a lot easier to manage as exactly. the salary cap continues to climb. So, and it's the same thing for the nurse deal. As much as people, uh, some people want to take shots at how much nurse is making, as the cap goes up, that percentage just goes down and down, and all of a sudden, it isn't as big of a burden on the blue line having a nine million dollar defenseman. No, I agree, and and that is the that is the trend. Like the, I don't see a time where the cap's going to go down. It's, it's going to keep rising. No, especially after the last several years with the pandemic, where it stayed close to the same with just very minor increases. This is an opportunity where you know the league has brought in a lot of revenue. Uh, they've got back to filling the buildings again post-pandemic, and um, you know there's a new team in the league with Seattle coming into the league, and the new deal with ESPN and TNT uh, Jersey ads. There's so many different revenue streams that have come into the league that weren't there a few years ago, and um, it, it's just a matter of time, I think, before it even gets up to a hundred million. I wouldn't be surprised within five years if the salary cap's a hundred million. No, I I see that happening. Yeah, especially all the different endorsements now the angel has uh, for revenue streaming and what have you. So, 
Yeah. And and of course, with McDavid and Dreisaitl's deals just two and three years away, respectively, you know, it, it'll be a, a huge help to the Oilers. They're going to need it to go up uh, by that much of a margin for, for them to sign those two to what I can imagine their next deals would look like. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, now we're talking big numbers. <laughs> we'll we'll deal with that one down the road, though. Uh, <laughs> Okay, uh, the next most important player the Oilers need to re-sign is Ryan McLeod. He just finished a one-year contract worth $798,000. McLeod will be an important player for the Oilers going forward as he looks to secure his spot as the third-line center on this team. Uh, Bob, do you think that the Oilers will sign McLeod to another short-term deal, or is he a player that the Oilers should be looking at signing for multiple years? No, I think this is another... uh... Because his role kind of changed uh, with the Oilers a little bit here when Woodcroft came on. Uh, one thing we didn't know about McLeod before is that he can kill penalties, but Woody knew that, so he had him in there, and he's quite effective at it. So he definitely has has a bigger uh, checking side to him now than than I think than I personally anticipated. So he's becoming more of a complete player. I don't think we'll ever see his numbers be like uh, top six numbers. So third line might be the perfect spot for him. He is still developing in that role. He's still learning. He's he's still quite a few years away from his prime. Um, I I think one year is kind of a short uh, short deal to make. Like maybe maybe put him at uh, three years for about one and a half to two if he's willing to go that way, and, and see what he can bring after that. I wonder if he's sort of the same as Bouchard in a way, is that he knows the salary caps going up, and he'd like to have this current deal end as quickly as possible so that he can sign for more too. Um, and, and as for, you know, sort of transitioning his game from being more of an offensive player to a, a two-way player, uh, he did that in junior as well. When he was playing with the Mississauga Steelheads, he was one of their top offensive players. And then he got traded to the Saginaw Spirit. And once he went there, uh, he was sort of thrust into more of a, of a checking role. And uh, it, it just sort of, ha- he had to adjust to that. And I think that probably helped his transition making that switch at the NHL level as well. And of course, he went down to Bakersfield where he, he uh, had a bit of a slow rookie pro year. And the, and the second year, he was a point per game player down there and eventually got recalled to the Oilers. But um, yeah, you, you can sort of see that that's sort of the player he's going to be at the NHL level. I mean, um, first and foremost, the Oilers have not had a lot of success after the first round of the draft. And he's a player they picked in the second round who's currently making an impact on the team. You know, he's big, fast, uh, a two-way center who can carry the puck up the ice. He's the second fastest skater on the team after McDavid. He kills penalties. Uh, He's made steady improvements in the face-off circle. And he's still only played 138 NHL games. So he still has a lot of room to grow as a player. Um, McLeod tallied 23 goals in 57 games, uh, 23 points in 57 games, I should say, this past season, which prorates to 33 points in a full 82-game season. Now, I don't think he's ever going to be a big point producer, but I could see him develop into a solid third-line center who puts up 40 points a year, maybe in the mold of a a Todd Marchant back in the day. So I'll predict a, a two-year deal for McLeod with a $1.8 million cap. It. I really think Holland will try and keep that number under two. Okay, because I, I I was thinking between 1.5 with a high ceiling of 2.1. So if he keeps it under two, that, yeah, that, I'm good with that for sure. And I don't see why he wouldn't uh, take that role. Um, 
I do feel like when they drafted McLeod, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but I, I, I kind of felt like they were, they pegged him to be like a second line player, more of a point producer, and then uh, now kind of revamped his um, game back to what he did in junior to become more of a all around player. I mean, look, he he was a projected first round pick. I believe Bob McKenzie had him going 24th overall in 2018. Uh, but I don't think that he was expected to be one of the Oilers' top two centers. Like, let's keep in mind, they already had McDavid and Dreisaitl in the fold by that point. So any center they bring in, it's sort of understood that you're going to be third-line center at, at best because the two the top two spots are occupied, especially when you already have Nugent Hopkins as well. He could easily shift down and be your third-line center, but he's spent more of a his time on the wing the last few years. So, you know, he's, he's one of those players that if there's an injury, he can go back to center. And that's the luxury of having as many centers as the Oilers do that they can switch these guys in and out. But, well, uh, but yeah, what he's been known, I, what he's been known kind of do to have some of these centermen play. Oh wing. yeah. Especially um, when he goes with the 11 and seven format. Right. Yep. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I just think, uh, McLeod is a, is a player who, like he he and Bouchard were friends before the draft even happened, you know, being um, the same age and, and growing up in, in southern Ontario. But uh, the fact that they got drafted to the same team in the same year, that that was awesome for them. And it's funny that they're the first two guys we're talking about here. So they'll you know, they're going to probably want to stick together as well. And I'm sure that uh, McLeod would be happy to have that third line center role behind McDavid and Dreisaitl for years to come. Hopefully be a guy, like I said, who can chip in 50, 15 goals and 40 points a season that I think that would be a, a good amount for him. That'd be great numbers. That's, that, those are good third line center numbers. Oh, Absolutely. definitely. And uh, the last RFA on the roster is Clem Costin. Now he is arbitration eligible, something that uh, Bouchard and uh, McLeod are not. So he has a minimum qualifying offer of $787,500. So hopefully he'd be willing to take a one-year contract for not much more than that price point. Uh, Look, Costin was an effective bottom six forward with the Oilers this past season. But do you think that Ken Holland has to draw a line in the sand when it comes to his negotiations? Absolutely. Uh, And and the problem is Costin also had enough games that kind of go against him in an arbitration hearing. He had some he had some amazing games, but he also had some games where he just totally disappeared. Uh, some of them would come right after he had an absolutely amazing game, and all of a sudden he'd like throw no hits and be invisible on the ice. So he was kind of his own worst enemy at at certain times. I always thought of Costin kind of he was the St. Louis Blues version of Puliyarvi, a first round draft pick that never found his game. He needed needed a change of scenery, and he showed flashes of what he can do. And when he's on his game, he's as effective as anybody, especially with throwing the body. And he's actually got an underrated set of skills as well, but uh, yeah, I think he'd be I think he'd be smart to accept uh, like an eight hundred thousand dollar offer or so and and ride it out and and then see if he can up his value. Yeah, and, and look, there have been rumors that he he could be a, a a potential candidate to go back to the KHL as well. I think that that would be a step backwards for his career. I mean, after spending several years in the minor leagues in the AHL grinding working to get yeah. to this point just to go back to the khl after all that time put in I, I feel like that would be a mistake and 
you know, after five years in the St. Louis Blues system, Costin finally gained a foothold in the NHL with the Oilers. And the big Russian quickly became a fan favorite in Edmonton this year. He can really shoot the puck. He uses his large frame to win battles. He brings a physical edge that the Oilers were desperately missing in the bottom six. And he's more willing to drop the gloves and, and stand up for a teammate than a lot of guys. So that's something that uh, really helps to to have a player like that. He, he scored 11 goals in 57 games this past season, which is a 16-goal pace over 82 games. And when you consider that he plays just over 10 minutes a night, it becomes even more impressive. Similar to Derek Ryan, how he's able to score in limited minutes. And he also buried a couple hugely important goals in the first round of the playoffs against the L.A. Kings. So my hope is that he will value the opportunity to play on a cup contender over trying to squeeze the team for an extra 500000 I mean, he's only 24, right? So right. if he keeps playing well... He's young enough that he can cash in on his next contract. Once again, similar to McLeod, when the salary cap goes up. So I'll say he gets a one-year deal for about $1.2 million. I, I would love to see it stay under a million. but So would I. I, I just think that they're going to look at the, the goals he scored. And, I mean, it, it, he did have – a lot of those goals did come in one stretch in the middle of the year. Right. But uh, but still, I mean, he he they can say he chipped in some some big moments in the playoffs as well. I just think uh, he, anytime when you have arbitration rights, right. it's probably going to be a little more than what we're hoping for. So I, I'm the same as you. If they could keep it under a million, that would really help, especially for this year when the Oilers are so tight to the cap. I just have a feeling that he's going to get at least a million plus. That's fair. Uh, I also, yeah, I agree that he was like he's one of those guys who's kind of a spurty player. Like, like you say, he scored in stretches and scored in bunches, and then you know nothing for a while. Uh, that that was my only concern is where he would just disappear for stretches at a time. But when he was effective, boy, he like, yeah, was he ever effective? And you make a good point too. Like some of the goals he scored were absolutely crucial, crucial goals, especially in the in the LA series. Yeah, I mean, there was that the one in, I think it was game three when they had the epic comeback. Oh, yeah. I, I believe he had two goals in that game. And then he scored the the game-winning goal. I think it was his first ever playoff goal uh, in game two in Edmonton, I want to say. So right there, that's, that's uh, a couple big moments to help them get over the hump and, and beat the Kings for the second straight year in the playoffs. And then um, in the regular season even, this was a guy who you knew he was going to be able to chip in from time to time. And um, when you when you have that kind of player who he can score goals, but he does a lot of other things too. Like I said, he, he can play physical. He dropped the gloves with some pretty big guys this year. Uh, and he's just, he's not afraid. To, he doesn't back down from anyone. And he gets in the mix whenever there's a scrum. He's always right in there protecting a teammate. It's a, it's a type of player that you want to have in your bottom six. That you need to have in your bottom six, especially to be successful. And also, look how much fun he's having up in the AHL. Oh, and yeah. You're, and you're right. If he goes to the KHL, it, like all that years of grinding to get to this point, and, he, and he's soaking up every minute that he can, that'd be a step backwards to go back to the K. Absolutely. 
It is. And I don't want to get into any political issues or anything like that. But I think, you know, staying away from Russia might be the uh, not just a career move, but just for a better life to stay in Edmonton and and to be on this team. Like it's you're not just a, a fourth liner who's just cracking the league. You're also on a team that has a real shot to win it. Yeah. And for for him to have a chance to be on a, a cup winning team, I mean, that has to be enticing, too. And it, it goes back to the thing of, that I said about Bouchard as well. Let's just say the Chicago Blackhawks uh, offer sheeted him to bring him in there and play with Bedard. Does does Bouchard really want to spend his prime rebuilding with the Blackhawks or does he want to have a chance to win the Stanley Cup next year? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're going to be just a money chaser, then we don't really need you either. We want somebody that buys into this this team element and everybody's got the same goal in mind. And and yeah, for sure. Like every every true hockey player wants that Stanley Cup. And this is one of your best opportunities. You're one of the best teams to have a chance at realizing that goal. Yeah, they I mean, they finished sixth in the league this past season. I think it should be a goal of theirs to push their way into the top five. And, uh, you know, they're, th- this team is really close. So uh, I, I don't see why any of the RFAs wouldn't be back. I, I give it almost a lock that, especially McLeod and, and Bouchard, yeah. but Costin, uh, I, I really hope that, uh, you know, like I said, he does try to squeeze the Oilers for as much money as he possibly can and, and, and just sees the opportunity ahead. Well, I think Costin is very thankful the orders picked him up because he was kind of floundering in the St. Louis system. They gave him the opportunity, yeah. I mean, and and he got traded for his good buddy, uh, Dmitry Samarukov. <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. It was a funny story when they he said that he texted him and said, hey, I'm coming to Edmonton, and Samarukov texted him back, I'm going to St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> wait, uh, wait, go to the highway. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, let's take a look at the UFAs now. And I think that Matthias Janmark is the most likely to return of the three. He earned $1.25 million last season. And if he's back, I think it would have to be for about the same number, if not a slight haircut with other players needing raises that we've already talked about. Uh, Bob, would you bring Janmark back? Or do you think the Oilers might look at a cheaper internal option? I think they'll look at both to begin with. Uh, number one, Yamark had an absolutely atrocious start at the, for his season by not even making the team when he was actually counted on to make the team, especially to help with the, with the PK and what have you. Um, but when they finally called him out, did he ever make the most of his, uh, opportunity and it was impossible to send him down. Uh, I think he, I think he's definitely earned, uh, another contract. Uh, he's also a guy, how, how old is Yanmark now? Like he's 30, right? Isn't he 30 years old? Uh, 29. Yeah. Somewhere like that. So he's another guy at the stage in his career where you, you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, coming faster than you anticipate probably. And like, this is probably your best chance of winning a cup here in the foreseeable future. So for him to be willing to take that, uh, take maybe a similar pay or, or a slight raise to, to achieve that. I think sounds doable, especially considering that uh, once he found his footing here with the with the Oilers, like he played a pivotal role, and I think he realizes that and how effective he can be here. Yeah, I mean, I think Yanmark was a savvy pickup for the Oilers. Holland drafted him back in 2013 when he was still with the Red Wings, so he right, obviously right, yeah. so he obviously would have known what to expect from the guy when he signed him. And let's not forget, like we said, Yanmark did start the year in the AHL. I, I don't think it was because he was 
as atrocious as as you said. I, I think it was just as simply the case that they couldn't fit him under the salary cap, and Dylan Holloway had forced his way onto the team, so somebody was going to get sent down, and obviously that would have been pretty disappointing to him, but uh, thankfully for him, he was recalled in November. Unfortunately, it was because Evander Kane went on LTIR, and when he came up, Yanmark provided exactly what the Oilers needed in a fourth-line winger the rest of the way. He scored 10 goals and 25 points in 66 games. He had a plus-nine rating, which you love to see from a bottom-six forward. Uh, he's one of Edmonton's top penalty killers. He's also a threat to score shorthanded, too. And whenever Jay Woodcroft went with the uh, 11 forwards and 7 defensemen alignment, it gave Yanmark the chance to have a few shifts with McDavid, and I thought they played pretty well together. Um, he's also quick enough to get up in the rush with McDavid and create odd man rushes. So I'll say he signs another identical one year deal for 1.25 million. I think, uh, like you bring up a good point. There's that actually Yamark has underrated offensive instincts. And you saw that from time to time, uh, when he would jump up, jump up in the play at certain times or, uh, where it was needed. He's a guy who can score goals in bunches too. He'll have a two goal game and then he won't score for 12 games and then he'll score another two goals in a game. So it, it adds up at the end of the year to 10, but, and I, I think he actually did get uh, two goals in the last game of the season that, that put him up to the double digits. So it just shows you right there, like how, how he just kind of chips away at it over time. But once again, he's another one of those guys that you're not bringing in for offense. If you get a little bit out of him, that's that's a bonus on top. But he he's there for uh, checking and for penalty killing, and and uh, and effective at it. So yeah, yep. like like you said, when he got called up, he played exactly the role that we wanted him from the beginning of the season to play. And we we there's no way he forced his way into the lineup and stayed there for sure. And uh, the next player we're going to talk about now is uh, Nick Bukestad, and I would love for the Oilers to keep him, but unfortunately, he's probably priced himself out of Edmonton. He had a $900,000 cap hit last season, and I'm sure there's some team out there that'd be willing to give him double that. Uh, Bob, do you think that Bukestad is probably done in Edmonton? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure he is, and I was I was one of those guys that was very excited when I heard we picked up Nick Bukestad. I've actually been kind of a closet fan of Nick Bukestead for, for a long time. Uh, number one, his size sticks out, but just the way he uses his size, and he's got some underrated hands to the goal with it. Uh, he, like, he was pushing 20 goals this season. Uh, yeah. all, uh, only this about, was 17, I think. Yeah, 17 so or 18. About, only about four or five with with, uh, with Edmonton. He did right. play, uh, he was leaned on. Three, three in the playoffs, too, though. Yeah, see, there you go. He, he was leaned on a bit more uh, in Arizona for for that type of play, but the role he played in Edmonton was extremely effective. Uh, oh my goodness. I, w- I would love to see him stay here, but he's also 30, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, for sure. He's going to get us, uh, more offers, a higher offer elsewhere. Uh, especially if teams were watching him at all, because of how effective he did play in, in oiler colors. So yeah, he's, he's played his way out of Edmonton, but I sure appreciate the time he did spend here. For sure. And I, I mean, he was another, Solid pickup at the deadline from the Coyotes, especially at 50% retained salary. So he only cost the team 450,000. Uh, I mean, Bukestad has great size at six foot six. Foot six. Uh, he's excellent on faceoffs. Uh, in fact, he set a franchise record in his first game as an Oiler, going 10 for 10 in the faceoff circle. 
Right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> and, you know, he has decent scoring touch too. Like we talked about, you know, the fact that he put up close to 20 and um, he reportedly really enjoyed his time in Edmonton. But if the Oilers can only afford to give him $1 million, then he's probably going to see what else is out there. So I would sign him to a two-year deal with a $900,000 cap hit, but I, I think he's probably headed back to the States. The only reason I think it's a bad decision for him, and I mean, I mean, who am I to say if it's what he <laughs> thinks is a, is a good career move or not, but he made pretty good money in Florida earlier in his career when he signed that six-year deal. And now he has an opportunity once again to play on a team that's pushing for a cup. So I would try and stay with the the team that has a chance to get you what you really want in your career, reach the ultimate goal and be a champion over trying to maximize your dollars. And I think that the Oilers, they, they can't offer him what probably some team in, in the States will. Maybe he goes back home to Minnesota, but I just, I feel like, the best place for him would be for him to just stay right here. And um, like I said, he reportedly really uh, enjoyed his, his time from uh, who he was living at Mark Pissick's house, I guess. And it was Pissick who said that, that, uh, that he, uh, that he really, you know, had a good time here and wanted to stay as an oiler. So uh, it's, it's a, it's too bad that he's probably going to move on because I, I think that was a good pickup for the Oilers and they gave up one of their, uh, top defensive prospects in Michael Kessel ring to get him. So that's a, you know, a player that you would have hoped that you're going to keep it if you trade a, a prospect like that at the deadline. An interesting anecdote too, I heard was uh, when the rumors started flying about uh, Bukestad coming to Edmonton, he had approached Zach Cassian uh, about what it was yes, like to play Edmonton. And, and he told him that playing in the playoffs here, there's nothing like it. Exactly. So, uh, and uh, and let's be honest, Eric, like uh, the point you bring up about guys willing to take a, you know, lesser salary to chase the dream. That is the selling point for the others too. If basically any player where that, that category fits, you have to sell that feature. This is your, this is one of your best chance to win a championship. Yeah. So we're, we might need you to do this for us and then we'll try to help you out in the long run kind of situation. Definitely. And uh, the final UFA on the Oilers is Devin Shore, but uh, we don't have to spend too much time on this. I can't see him coming back next season, even as the 13th forward. Bob, what do you think? No. Uh, in fact, I was kind of surprised when we, when we did re-sign him. Um, maybe he earned it on his attitude alone. I've, I've, I like Devin Shore as a person, and he has his moments, but I've never been a, been a huge fan of, of him as a player. I never really thought he brought anything too much uh, extra special to the to the team or nothing that stood out where it was a definite strength of his. I mean, like I said, he had he had his moments, uh, but yeah, we had like every single person on on that uh, regular roster was a better player than Devin Shore, and it was tough for him to find a spot in the lineup on like it, even every tenth game or so. Yeah, and the thing is, like, yes, he's good on the four check. He had decent speed. Um, he, he played with a little bit of grit, but the thing is, is that they can probably find a prospect that they'd rather give those minutes to than another, another guy who's pushing 30 and is, you know, a, a fringe fourth line player at the NHL level at this point in his career. Like I, I give him credit for carving out the, the type of career he has to this point uh, and, and playing in the league for, uh, I think he's been in the league seven or eight years now. So, I mean, he's, he's made a career for himself, but 
the Oilers need to move on. They have guys like Raphael Lavoie pushing their way up, and um, it won't be long too before you know you you hope that uh, a player like Xavier Bor goes in the mix or or some of these guys. So that that's a spot that you you don't want to be having Devin Shore occupying. And yes, he's apparently a great guy in the room. And uh, everybody on the team loves him. He's a friend with McDavid. But you have to eventually sort of say that e- even for our black aces, our, our depth players, we, we want to still be upgrading the team in those areas. You need to be looking at upgrading in every area, especially yeah. when you keep falling short. And that's one of the frustrating things is how this year where uh, we were a better team and yet uh, we didn't go as far as the year previous. So you're always looking at that 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 one player, two players, three players that can help you get that extra push. And they could have. I mean, the Oilers were right there. It was a 2-2 series, and, and they had two of their worst games of the playoffs in game five and six when they, they had leads in both of those games and just couldn't close it out. Um, so, you know, disappointing there. But you, that's why I say you can see how close that this team is. And, um, you know, maybe if the Oilers are that close to the cap again that they won't be able to have uh the three spare players uh carried with them all season they're they're going to just have to run with a 20-man roster and if someone gets hurt you'll have an emergency call up from bakersfield and if that's the only way that they can fit 20 guys under the salary cap then so be it so be it and let's face it though like uh vegas had a tougher time with Edmonton than they have with florida so we like we are just so close yeah we're right there and uh, we'll just finish up the show tonight by talking about a couple of players on the UFA market that have been connected to the Oilers. Sportsnet's Elliot Friedman said on 32 Thoughts, the podcast, that the Oilers will target Connor Brown when free agency starts on July 1st. And then Brown was actually a guest on Luke, Bo- Luke Gazdick's Mitts Off podcast this week as well, where he said that he would welcome the opportunity to be reunited with his former junior line mate, Connor McDavid in Edmonton. Uh, Bob, do you think that the Oilers should sign Brown, or do you have any concerns about him bouncing back after tearing his ACL last season? Well, first off, I actually heard it from you first about Connor Brown, uh, you quoting Elliot Freeman about about uh, the Connor Brown situation. And then uh, just the other day there, I actually saw the clip of Luke, uh, Luke Gazzett and Connor Brown talking. So that was, you know, to hear it from the horse's mouth is like, uh, he's putting yeah, in no. good work for the Oilers there, trying to sort of recruit him without... Hey, he's not on the Oilers' payroll, so he can be the one to tell him to come in. <laughs> 100%. Ken um, Holland can't talk to him yet, but he's like, hey, hey, Luke, put in a good word for us. So he's he's under 30, right? Connor Brown, 29, something like that? So, uh, yes, he's 29. He's 29. So I, I have full confidence on him being able to recover from, uh, from that surgery and from that injury. Uh, he's still basically in the, in his prime window. Um, oh my goodness! Like, and they played together. Him and McDavid played together in junior. Had success. I think uh, it's probably the worst kept secret uh, in the NHL right now. But I don't see how Connor Brown doesn't become an Edmonton Oiler. Uh, having said that, though, now now what are you looking at for when it comes to a salary and and a contract? Is it a one year thing where he just kind of proves it to us? I think it would have to be a one year thing. You're coming off a big injury, and now show us what you can do. Uh, probably under the $2 million mark, uh, preferably. Uh, he's coming, isn't he, Eric? Come on. 
He's coming. I, I have a very strong feeling that of all the names that we've heard linked to the Oilers, that Connor Brown is the most likely to end up as an Edmonton Oiler. And I think he'd be a perfect fit for this team. First of all, he's played with McDavid before. And even though that was nine years ago, they would probably be able to find chemistry again pretty quickly. And I'm sure that they still skate together with all of the other Toronto area NHL players in the summer. Um, Brown has good offensive instincts. He has soft hands. He continually turns over pucks, which is great for when you're playing with a player like McDavid. If you're forcing turnovers and McDavid can pick those up in full stride and catch the other team flat-footed, that's a, a great line mate for him. Uh, he also has excellent finishing ability in tight to the crease, which is just another thing that makes him an ideal uh, winger to play with Connor. And uh, he's averaged 16 goals per 82 games in his career. But I think that he could get close to 25 if he spends most of the season on McDavid's wing. Uh, and while he is coming off a knee injury, and, and it's always concerning when a player is dealing with uh, that type of an injury, it was apparently a clean tear with no ligament damage. So now that we're eight months uh, past his surgery, that hopefully means he'd be ready for training camp in the fall. And uh, as for a contract, there will surely be other teams that could offer him more money than Edmonton can. But the Oilers can offer him one thing that no one else can, and that's the opportunity to play with his good friend and the best player in the world. So I'll say that he signs a one-year deal worth $2 million with performance bonuses that could maybe bump it up another million dollars. If, let's say, he scores 20 goals or gets 45 points. Oh, yeah. And 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 why wouldn't he be able to? Like like you say, he has good finishing. I, I, you make a good point about him finishing up close, actually. I, I've uh, Once before, I actually compared him to Zach Hyman that way, how, how they were good at finishing. Yeah, like, like right close and they're the former teammates with the Leafs too, right? And, and the thing is, is that, one one of the, the the best parts about McDavid and Drysaddle's game is that they're both such elite passers, and they can feed, you know, tape to tape passes through a maze of sticks, and all you have to do is be in the right position with your stick on the ice and have a little bit of finishing ability when you get to that spot. And if if Connor Brown or or uh, Zach Hyman are in those spots, and and we've seen it time and time again with Hyman here over the past two years, mm-hmm. is that not all of his goals are incredible, you know, dangles through the defense and, and roofs it on the backhand or something. A lot of it's just being in the right spot and tapping home a perfect pass. So if Connor Brown can sort of do the same thing, that's going to make him a very effective player for this team. I think uh, actually Connor Brown is probably even has better offensive skill than Zach Hyman overall. Uh, but yeah, that's what I think one of his, the, one of his biggest strengths is how he is able to score from close in so effectively. Well, I mean, I don't want to take too much away from Zach either. Like, he is coming off a 37-goal, 83-point season. I don't think that Brown's going to get anywhere near those numbers. But also, in fairness, Zach Hyman does have the privilege of playing on the power play, which is something that Connor Brown likely isn't going to do in Edmonton. But uh, so those those 20 goals, if he if he gets that with McDavid, it's going to have to be, once again, all at even strength. Well, skill set doesn't necessarily always uh, produce the numbers accordingly. Yeah, so that's fair. Even if I find Connor Brown to be, a, I think he has better offensive skills overall. Uh, Zach Hyman's been more effective with the skills he has. That's that's been proven. I mean, if if his skill was producing of numbers, then Robbie Shrimp would be have a Hall of Fame career. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from from Brown because in 20. 
13-14, he did lead the OHL in scoring when he was playing with 16-year-old phenom Connor McDavid. Uh, so there, there, you know, that's he he has that on his resume. He won a scoring title in the OHL, which is something McDavid never even did. <laughs> hey, yeah, that's a good point. That's right, he didn't. Now, McDavid did only finish, I believe, nine points back of Dylan Strome in 2014-15, but he also missed six weeks with a broken hand. So if you give him if you give him that time back, he would have cruised to a, a scoring title. Which is probably what, the only fight he had in junior, correct? It's the only fight he's ever had in his entire hockey career. So so hopefully he learned his lesson. He's like, you know what, I can fight, but I'm better off not. Yeah, he was in a situation where he was sort of forced into it, and yeah, unfortunately, I, I of it. and he punched the stanchion, and you know, <laughs> and the 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 tough part was is that the World Juniors were like about a month and a half away when that happened, and you know, the doctor told him like you're you're not playing any hockey until then minimum, and and hopefully you'll be ready in time for the world juniors and and thankfully for him the the hand healed over those six weeks to the point where he was able to uh play for team canada and uh, end up tying for the the tournament lead and scoring so uh he got back just in time but you wonder if if that injury would have happened a week later he probably wouldn't have played that's another example though of what a specimen he is like he's had some pretty serious injuries here too with that collarbone that stuck him up for a while but even that leg one he had there when giordano hit him and whatnot Yet his his recovery ability has been like amazing. Yeah, broken clavicle in his rookie year, uh, uh, a completely torn uh, MCL at the end of uh, the 2018-19 season. And you know the one the one silver lining to come out of that injury is that he never missed a single game with that yeah. one. It happened in the season finale, and uh, you know in the final game of the regular season in 2018-19. And thankfully he was. Uh, he was healed and back in time to play on opening night in 2019-20. Oh, how blessed are we to be able to watch this guy play? And and just in storybook fashion, of course, he he ends up scoring the game-winning goal late in the third period in the in the first game back. So it just it, he seems to have a flair for the dramatic, much like Gretzky did. And and it's like no moment is too big for him. He just he he steps up at the exact right time and and comes through and and plays the hero. Well, how long after he came back from that clavicle injury did he score that beauty against Columbus? It was, was his it, first game back. Yeah, it was the first game back. It was That's his right. first game back. It's just he has this this knack for uh, scoring a either a game winning goal or a, or a beautiful goal in his his first game back from a serious injury. Ridiculous. After missing was, 37 games, like at that point, it was the the best goal uh, of McDavid's career, obviously because he was relatively young, but. The one he scored against the Rangers here a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, and you know I have that debate with Oilers fans from time to time. Who and, and I think that the Rangers goal is the best one. Uh, up until that point, the the one against the Blue Jackets in his rookie year would have been. But as as amazing as that goal was uh, against Columbus, I, I think that you have to put the Rangers goal as the top one. And now to make it worse, even I should have I should have mentioned that as one of my favorite live moments at all time. I was there at that. <laughs> for that oh, one. were you? Yeah. yeah. You know what? Just, I was at the I was at the game before that when they played Nashville two nights earlier, and I remember watching that game against the Rangers at home, and the Oilers fell behind four one in the first yeah, period, yeah. 
And I remember saying to myself, oh, man, I, I made the right choice going to the game against uh, against Nashville. Like I, I wouldn't have wanted to be seeing this. And then the Oilers slowly start to come back and come back. And all of a sudden it's 4-2 and then 4-3. And then McDavid ties it 4-4. It's just they they worked their way back into that game and ended up winning in overtime on a Leon Dreisaitl goal. But yeah, just oh. and then ESPN even did a a short uh, feature on it when they were that was showed in the States. So it's great to see that, you know, that was like at least giving McDavid a little more promotion south of the border, which he doesn't get enough of. Um, oh. But just a, what a, what a goal to come back on. We could, we could spend a whole podcast just talking about McDavid goals and highlights. I'd be up for that one. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I remember when that, that goal, like I didn't even cheer at first. I was so stunned. I was just stunned. You just couldn't believe what you saw. I remember opening my mouth to yell and nothing came out. Like I just <laughs> didn't believe it. I started jumping before I started yelling. And then after everything, I kind of died down. There's, there was a murmur through the whole crowd uh, uh, for a while there. And then all of a sudden, just spontaneously, uh, like once the murmurs kind of died down, spontaneously, the crowd just stood up and started and just gave the whole team a standing ovation. Like it was a tie <laughs> game at that point and just standing ovation. It was like, it gave me chills. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen a player skate in on a one on four before and score and and not and not even go to the outside he deked through the middle of the ice i mean really even with as great as mcdavid is there's no way that four rangers players should have allowed one guy to get through someone take the stick someone take the body whatever and he still was able to deke out their entire team and then the goalie not just entire team he beat out norris uh adam fox and he beat out vezina igor shesterkin yeah. Oh no, Shesterkin wasn't in goal that night. It was uh, it was uh, Georgiev. Oh yeah, you're right. It was Georgiev. Who, yeah, and yeah. and thankfully it was. Maybe Shesterkin would have stopped it. But uh, I've overanalyzed but, this goal to pieces because I've never seen anything like it. And just the whole timing of how he reads the timing of the Rangers, the kind of oh, like, it's it's ridiculous. Next time I'm on your show, uh, you and uh, Chad can. Uh, can break down as, as goalies, how you would uh, handle McDavid coming in on you on a breakaway. Uh, I would have just fainted probably. So <laughs> <laughs> just duck for cover behind the net. For cover, yeah. uh, just, just sign the puck after Connor. We'll be good. And, uh, and lastly, uh, Jeff Merrick also mentioned on 32 thoughts that Jonathan Taves would be a great fit with the Oilers. Uh, now he just turned 35 a couple months ago and he's had some lingering health issues over the past couple years. But does bringing in Taves intrigue you at all, Bob? Uh, yeah, it does. And, and uh, I appreciate you bringing, the, bringing that topic up, even on, on our podcast, where we touched on it briefly. Um, I'm not, first off, selfishly, I'm a big Jonathan Taves fan, have been from the very start, so I've always wanted to see him in order colors. Now, recognizing that he's now in his mid-30s, uh, yeah, he's coming off some, some respiratory issues. Um, I do feel like... Uh, I believe you have the numbers there where you said what you prorated his numbers were at. He actually had a pretty decent season for the for the time that he did play. He was on pace for 23 goals and 48 yeah. points in 82 games, which as a 34-year-old on a terrible Blackhawks terrible. team is still pretty is pretty impressive. So, of course, so yeah, so that's that's 20 goals. That's not nothing to sneeze at at any point in anybody's career. Um so that's why I say he's some people don't think he has anything less left. I think he still has some gas in the tank. Not only that, but you're looking at a, at a leader that that's been there before the, the like Duncan Keith already was a huge factor for us. I'm glad you mentioned his name earlier because I do feel like 
we missed Duncan Keith more than we were willing, willing to admit yep. for the first little while. And I think well, Keith is going to be doing some recruiting, trying to, you know, convince his old buddy, Jonathan Taves, to uh, to come in. And there's also word that, I mean, this is going off on a, a whole other tangent, but Patrick Kane uh, likely isn't going to be ready to play until November of next season. So he probably, he might not sign with a team this summer. He might wait and see where things are at and then make his decision a couple months into the season next year. And you wonder if Taves is here and he's playing well, does Kane say like, Hey, I want to be a part of that too. Sign me up for one cheap deal. Well, now Eric, now we run the risk of, of uh, creating our own fantasy team on a PlayStation <laughs> here. So, I, I definitely think that Taves is a more likely player to, to wind up in Edmonton than, than Kane, but it's just something to think about. That's something I, I'm concerned about because of, of his respiratory issues. He's been very open about it and how that's been a struggle for him. So I well, think he he's still to... suffering from long COVID, right? Yeah, exactly. And it it forced him to miss an entire season. And and that's that's a like a lung rebuild is that takes a long time to get that kind of gas back. But the uh, so if if we're able to load manage him. Like play him like say give him sixty sixty five games kind of thing and I think he's which load management really isn't a thing in the NHL it's it's definitely more common in the NBA but for certain players like Taves you might have to say like you know um, you're only playing sixty games here like you said maybe you're only playing fifty five but we want to have you at full strength or as close to it as we can for the playoffs so you have Jonathan Dave scoring over twenty goals on a, a dead last team where there's not much motivation except for, uh, you know, don't fail miserably all the time. How energized does Jonathan Taves come as an oiler with a chance to win a cup one more time? And playing on a line with Ryan McLeod and uh, Dylan Holloway. Like, you're probably giving him some better talent to play with, too. I think that, like, he's not the player he was uh, 10 years ago. Not even the player he was five years ago. But what Taves still can do is he can still chip in offensively, uh, he's been around the game for 16 years and at, at the NHL level. And, and also, he's won three Stanley Cups. And, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl are in their prime now. They've been on a couple playoff runs, one deep playoff run to the Western Conference Final. But to have Taves in the dressing room to sort of pass along some wisdom, to every once in a while stand up and, and say something to, you know, let the group know about what it takes to get this done, I think that that would almost be equally valuable if not more valuable than to what he would bring on the ice and and that's not and he's no slouch on the ice like you mentioned 20 plus goals and plus he's effective on the face-offs you could you could throw him the odd shift on a penalty kill uh he knows what to do there so he he wouldn't just be a dressing room voice that's for sure he, he brings a lot of intangibles right and once again it's another one of those scenarios where the oilers can't really talk to him yet but uh you know i i still wonder if even though duncan keith technically is working for the Oilers now if he uh hasn't had a, a phone call with his uh his old Chicago Blackhawks teammate and buddy and just say you know I had such a great time in Edmonton I think you'd love it here too yeah no that's well, uh, that'd be that'd be beautiful uh, I would love to see it uh I do obviously I think we've established that Connor Brown's pretty much coming here uh <laughs> Taves would be kind of like the cherry on top of the icing of that of that agreement and, and let, let's take it this year Eric. let's just do it already you know what? This is the year to be aggressive. It's probably going to be Ken Holland's last year as GM before they hand the keys over to Steve Steos. And maybe Ken stays on as the, the president of hockey operations. I think that that would actually be a good decision for the Oilers and for him to, first of all, Holland gets to stay 
uh, in the mix uh, competing um, with an NHL team. And also Steos has a bit of a mentor there to, to guide him through that, uh, that early stage of his career as an NHL GM. But uh, at this point, Holland sees the opportunity here. You've got Dreisaitl under contract for two more years. You've got McDavid under contract for three more years. The salary cap's going up. You want to take advantage of this opportunity and, and make the most of it. So I think that he needs to be as aggressive as possible to put this team over the edge. And I, I think that they'll make a couple moves. Like if we said maybe they bring in Taves and Kane in free agency. And then during the season, uh, something comes available. Like there there could be an opportunity to make a, a similar trade to the Ekholm deal next uh next right. february before the deadline that's that's what they need to do again they, they need to find next year's version of matthias ekholm and i really think they're one defenseman away from having a really strong top four no disrespect to cody cc he right. has he was a uh, arguably the oilers best all-around defenseman two years ago and then took a bit of a step back this year when he was uh sort of dealing with a lingering lingering injury himself but uh but yeah, overall, I just think that uh, you know they're headed in the right direction, but uh, they just need to sort of not uh, not waste this opportunity and make sure that they don't leave any stone unturned in terms of uh, acquiring talent to give this team a shot to go all the way to the final. You make a good point about this possibly prob- probably being Holland's last uh, season as the, as the GM. So really, he could just throw all his cards on the table and, and just go for it. The one last hurrah. And and why wouldn't he? And and then to stay on uh, as an advisor or a president of hockey operations, mm-hmm. like what kind of a mentorship to, for Steve Steos and to have like a Hall of Fame proven winner as Ken Holland by your yeah. side? I, Ken Holland has gotten some unnecessary bad knocks here in Edmonton. He's made some extremely extremely effective moves to make us a better team. Not every I, I think group, he doesn't get the credit he deserves. I was I was having every, a, I was having a conversation about this on on Twitter the other day that. Um, you, people point out every little mistake that Ken Holland's made, but they rarely give him credit for the 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 wins that he's had. Uh, signing Zach Hyman, re-signing Ryan Nugent Hopkins, bringing in Evander Kane, trading for Matthias Ekholm. Like his fingerprints are all over this team. And you know you can say what you want about McDavid and Drysaddle being so responsible for uh, how successful this team has been. Yes, they have been extremely responsible. But uh, there were previous GM regimes that had uh, uh, yeah. McDavid and Dreisaitl that were not at this level where the Oilers are four years in a row in the playoffs and in second place in the division in each of those years. Yeah, and not everyone, that's the whole point of making these moves. Not not all of them hit. You don't know that until you get it. Like you, You're going to get your odd Mike Green situations, but then you have these under... Rated things like Duncan Keith, I think, was very undervalued as an order. I thought he was a very calming presence. And and br- like you mentioned earlier, brought it a lot of good things about uh, Evan Bouchard uh, to his game. And the fact that he's staying on as, you know, working for the orders now uh, shows how, mu- how, val- how much he valued his time here. And uh, how much the Oilers valued him. It, yeah, exactly. It's a two-way, it's a two-way street. street. Yeah, exactly. There it you doesn't go. Always have, it doesn't always have to be the numbers. Uh, on the stat sheet, it's, it's, it's all that kind of leadership and the calming presence and how you make other players around you better, uh, that are effective moves. And, and Holland's been around this game long enough that he knows what it takes to, to win championships. I think a lot of his theories still hold up in today's game, even though the game has changed so much. And he's shown that he's shown that, that he can find these weaknesses and, and 
make these moves to try and make the team better. Uh, he still got it, and I know people uh, harp on him for bringing up the Detroit Red Wings every chance he gets at a in a press conference. But I'll tell you what, if I had won all the Stanley Cups, that's, I would lead with that. That would be my intro to every press conference, and then then move on from there. He's been a scout since 1985. He's been a GM since 1997. This is a guy who has been in the NHL for four decades. Um, you're not going to find someone who is as experienced as him around the league, other than maybe David Poyle. Like he's he's right up there. Of, of I, I think he won his 41st playoff series as a GM this year in the playoffs, which is, I, I think, top five all time for most playoff series one as a GM. So it just shows you like how successful he's been in his career. And some people will say, yes, it was before the salary cap era with the Red Wings. But like I said, look what he's now done since he's come to Edmonton. He's been rejuvenated with, you know, like I said, the two best players in the team to build around. And uh, hopefully like he's already in the Hockey Hall of Fame, but he can just add to his resume with another cup this year. And with that kind of resume that you just listed off, yeah. the respect uh, that he gets from his fellow GMs, like he has some power, he has some pull, like he he know he knows how to work this, and and I think he's done a bang up job for us, honestly. Yeah, I mean, people were pushing him for years to trade a first round pick, and he held on to all his first round picks, yeah. and this year he technically traded both or two because he traded a the the first round pick that's going to be in the draft in less than a week and. Also, the the Reed Schaefer, who was the Oilers' first-round pick last summer. Exactly. So it just he, – he made a, a move, and now the Oilers brought in one of the best all-around defensemen in the league and Matthias Ekholm, and what a huge move that was for them. Oh, uh, can't be understated. It actually made Darnell Nurse a better player as well, even though they don't really play together. I think Nurse felt almost too much pressure being the number one guy by himself, and now he's able to shoulder that load. He's not taking as many risks. He's definitely uh, just become a more of an effective player with a little less responsibility with Ekholm being there now, too. There you go. Well, I just want to say, Bob, I appreciate you being on the show tonight for almost two hours. We've You and I have talked for over three and a half hours total this week between two podcasts. So uh, it's been awesome having you on the show and definitely want to have you back again sometime. I would love to, Eric. I was very excited when you, uh, when you first uh, mentioned the fact that I could come be a guest on your show um so i've been looking forward to this one and it was it was worth every minute and i really appreciate the opportunity of course it's been a great conversation man i i I love talking with other passionate oilers fans and uh like i said before you you have a a great show going on now with uh, mike and chad and you know the more shows that we can add to the heavy hockey network here and give oilers fans more content i mean that's what we're trying to do here so um just keep up the good work with that as well Ah, uh, thanks for the good words. Uh, for sure, it's, it's a very it's a privilege to be part of the Heavy Hockey Network. Definitely. And where can people find you on Twitter? Bob Goalie, uh, Bob Goalie One, I think it is actually, because I it used to be Bob Goalie, and then I forgot my uh, password for that <laughs> one. So I'm at Bob Goalie One, and that's all I have for kind of social media. I guess I'm on Facebook, but that's more for other stuff. But yeah, go <laughs> follow him for his Oilers tweets on Bob Goalie One. Bob, once go. again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. Have a good night, buddy. You too. All right. So for Bob Schmidt, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.